Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And welcome aboard, everybody. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Midrats. And um, for those that are joining us live, I'd like to invite for you to scroll down to the bottom of the show page. Uh, that's where you'll find the chat room. We're having a a few little gremlins in the chat room, but uh, it might be up and running before you know it today. And if you have some observations you would like to share during the course of the show or some questions you would like for us to direct to our guest, uh, we have uh, our buddy Jerry Hendricks and Paul standing up there at the Smoking Sponson. Uh, they'll be glad to have you join them and uh, have a good conversation. And if you got a runoff during the course of the show and um, – Take care of some other business, and you want to see what you may have missed. Uh, if you don't already, I'd invite you to go ahead and head over to iTunes or Spreaker or any of your podcast aggregators, and go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. It won't cost you a penny, and that way MidRats will be waiting for you any time you have in your schedule during the week. And enough of that. We're going to go ahead and dive into today's subject, and kind of a common conversation you'll find in the navalist corner of the uh, conversation space is most navalists like uh, your, your, your guest and your co-host and most of the listeners here. You can look around them and you, you can feel that our peers, the government, the American people, that uh, they just don't understand or in, in many frustrating regards, even care that our nation's wealth, health, and national security is based on the fact that we have maritime and aerospace links that we are accustomed to being the primary power at. And being able to secure that, uh, we're able to maintain our economic and leadership position in the world. And uh, in a lot of people's adult lifetimes, we are at a point now where that is under threat um, more than any other time with the rise of challenge uh, for coming from China, but uh, it doesn't seem to quite be able to break above the background noise. And today uh, we're bringing on a return guest that we're going to look at this challenge. Who are some of the uh, players and organizations or even parts of our culture that should be more engaged in telling the story specifically about the maritime needs and requirements for our nations and as a byproduct, our allies that, that ride with us in this uh, world structure that, that our dominance for decades has pretty much built. And that is Lieutenant Commander Jimmy Drennan, United States Navy, former president of the Center for International Maritime Security. And Jimmy is returning to MidRats as himself, not as a representative of any other organizations. And his opinions are his own and may not necessarily be that of any organization or command he may be associated with. And Jimmy, welcome back to Midrat. Hey, Sal. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I uh, just want to make sure you can hear me okay. 
Yeah, we had a little bit of uh, of, of background noise, but uh, right at the end, it went away. But uh, you could be at the beach enjoying a margarita, suntanning, <laughs> or who who knows where you are. Uh, but uh, do thank you and appreciate you coming on board today. And kind of as a as a scene setter, is we had you on uh, last fall, uh, right after uh, a couple months after the uh, retreat from Kabul, and a few months before Russia decided it wanted to invade Afghanistan. And if we didn't talk about it at the time, it was in the air, but there was a discussion that um, this is an opportunity for us to, to refocus and recenter attention on something that was taking, if not a backseat, was at least in the shadows, two decades of wars in, in Central and Southwest Asia. And that's the, the maritime challenge that has emerged in bold relief west of Wake, uh, something that we really have not seen since the Red Banner Northern Fleet uh, got people's interest in the mid-1980s. And uh, the Ukraine-Russian war uh, has reared its head, and it, and it is predominantly a, a land war, and it's lasting much longer than people are thinking, but there has been a very interesting and noteworthy maritime demand. And before we dive into the broader topic, I just thought I wanted to give you an opportunity to say from, from, from your perspective, what do you see as some of those bold-faced items in the maritime domain that, that people should take note of uh, when we think about what we need to do and invest our monetary and intellectual efforts towards? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So a, a few things that that come to mind. Uh, you know, first of all, not not my uh, specific area of expertise. I, I focus on the the Middle East, uh, but these days anybody in the in the United States military is certainly keeping an eye on what's happening in Ukraine, um, and it affects uh, more than just Europe. So uh, we are all uh, very much attuned to it. Um, so. First off, uh, you know, items like the, uh, the battle for Snake Island uh, is interesting to me and the amount of effort that um, both sides have put into controlling or not denying that, um, that area. Uh, of course, the Black Sea more broadly, uh, its importance in uh, resupplying the, the uh, Russian troops that are in Ukraine um, and the attack on the cruiser Moskva. Uh, it certainly uh, highlights the threat that navies face uh, from coastal defense uh, batteries. Um, those are not new. And in fact, um, that's what's interesting to me about it is that, you know, that the weapons that took out that cruiser um, are decades old. Tactics are, are not new, uh, but maybe we're, the Russians uh, are relearning some lessons uh, and I, I would wager that, that we would as well, uh, were we faced with similar circumstances. Um, there is uh, some mine warfare going on in the Black Sea, and it hasn't really made a lot of headlines. I think most of it is defensive mining, uh, but you know that that's another area that the Navy. I think the Russian Navy is uh, going a little bit back to the future, maybe, and. Um, I think we're all going to be faced with that reality that, that uh, you know, history didn't end after the Cold War and uh, the, the 20 years that we saw in the Middle East in Iraq and Afghanistan, I think, are, are going to be rather atypical in the coming century. And 
we're going to be seeing things like what's happening in Ukraine um, happen in other places. And uh, the maritime is going to be a huge part of it, even if it is, as you said, a, a, basically a land war. Uh, and the last thing I'll mention is the, um, the grain shortage, uh, the wheat that, uh, you know, the breadbasket of Europe, Ukraine, uh, is not able to provide. And there's some uh, uh, blockading going on. And I think that has a, a lot to do with the maritime. And I think it's very interesting. That's sort of a non-naval aspect of the, the maritime domain where, where this uh, Ukraine conflict is um, kind of rippling out uh, to, the, to the globe the uh, you know the, the global community so um, very interesting to see how that plays out um, and whether pressure is put on Russia by us or others and uh, you know how much pressure they can put on the international community in terms of uh, uh, you know food aid or denying food uh, that's going to be very interesting to see how that all plays out yeah it's a it's an interesting time to remind the American people of how important our our maritime activities are and, and as you rightly say not just limited to the naval affairs um, and and I just you know I'm looking back at the at the uh, various ways we've managed to, to have things messed up and recently so we got the ship stuck in the Suez Canal that apparently didn't sink into people that maritime affairs were important we've, now we've got uh, Ukraine uh, uh, situation where we're getting to, everybody's thinking about well how are we going to feed all these people what's going to happen to to stuff you know and th there has been mention of mind warfare we're also getting into the great things like the fact that turkey controls the the uh, dardanelles um what what would it take do you think to really get people excited about supporting the navy and 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 thinking of it separately from the other services and not just the Navy, but the maritime community as a whole. Yeah, I think, uh, well, something that comes to mind is something that um, uh, my good friend Sal Mercagliano, uh, uh, Professor Mercagliano once told me was that um, we are all only three meals away from killing each other over a Twinkie. And I think that really, to me, that, that sinks in the importance of uh, of supply chains to everyone, not just, not just us, but certainly um, we are dependent on, you know, the, the global supply chains that run through the maritime and, um, and it's, and it's fragile right now. Uh, the, the, the global infrastructure um, for maritime uh, shipping is, is fragile. And the, the evergreen, I mean, sorry, the ever given, was a great example of that. It was just, uh, unfortunately, I think too transient and not enough. Well, I would say it's a, probably a good thing that people didn't feel the pinch uh, and no, nobody nobody starved. Um, but that's uh, unfortunately, I think, uh, wasn't enough to wake people up. There are other, you know, other things that could happen. Uh, I, I think of, uh, you know, one example is there's a an aging uh, tanker in the Southern Red Sea, the FSO Soffer, uh, in contr under control of uh, the Houthi rebels in Yemen, and uh, the UN's doing good work there to try to uh, mitigate that potential catastrophe. But if it were to uh, spill all of its cargo, which is uh, increasingly likely, 
then that would potentially block that maritime choke point in the Sogan Red Sea, the Babel Mandeb, uh, for a lot longer than the than the ever given was stuck in the Suez Canal. So, um, you know, we're and that's why I mentioned the fragility of of our networks, and then of course, and I'm sure we'll get more into it, the fact that China has such a power position over those networks uh, is also not ideal for us. We're going to have to uh, reckon with that, I think, at some point. And I think part of that reckoning is, and this is both a feature and a bug of our uh, society. I'm not a fan of Friedman, who likes to brag about how much he loves the Chinese authoritarian model because you can just do things. We have to we're a republic, representative republic. The American people have to make their elected representatives be interested and be concerned about certain subjects. And there are leaders who are, are stepping forward to do that on their own, but they're few and far between. You really need the pressure of the American people. And, uh, and you, you mentioned Sal Marcagliano, and I think you know, Sal and John Conrad, who we've had on board, they both echoed this frustration, is that – it's almost we almost got there where people were talking about supply chain issues and you know the port of Long Beach backed up, but it seems that everybody would focus on the ships they could see from the beach, but trying to get visibility beyond that horizon besides our little small chatting group that does understand it. Um, I, I guess the, the question is, you know, there people's jobs, people's economy, um, people's uh, ability to go to the store and be able to uh, spend the amount on, on food that they've wanted to in the past. Uh, you know, just speaking from America, maybe we can touch in later some of the events that are going on in uh, Albania is the latest, but Sri Lanka is the worst as the, the effects of the, the trade problems start to manifest themselves ashore. But the, what are the imperial we here, missing, do you think, are a better way that we could tell the story so the American public would better appreciate how much they rely on their jobs and their ability to feed their family for those things that are beyond the horizon of what they can see at the beach? Yeah, that is, uh, uh, that might be the million dollar question because, you know, I'm, I can tell you that things that you and, and most of your audience probably already know that you know, we are so dependent on um, shipping. I mean, uh, over 70% of our foreign trade um, it flows, you know, that's that's a, uh, roughly $1.5 trillion uh, flows through our nation's seaports. Um, you know, another example, our exclusive economic zone, um, which is uh, you know, 200 miles from our, our coastline, uh, is uh, about two and a quarter million square miles um, and it produces 6% of the global seafood catch, and about half of it is unmapped. So that means that there's potentially trillions of dollars of um, economic benefit uh, in our EEZ. Um, you know, there's historical examples of the importance of shipping, you know, World War II and the U.S. Maritime Service, the Liberty and Victory class ships, Um you know, of course, uh, Lend-Lease. I mean, it goes on and on. Uh, it, it's uh, it's uh, unfortunately a, 
I don't think we've been able to crack the code on how we tell that story to the American people, but it, it, whether they know it or not, they are extremely dependent on the sea. Um, and it's, and as I, you know, just rattle off those examples, it's not just the Navy. It's not just the Navy's job to handle the sea for America. Uh, Americans ha have a personal, you know, vested interest. They just don't, I don't think they understand it. And, you know, maybe it's, uh, sometimes I wrestle with whether or not we as a, as a society have determined, and we do this through our elected government, uh, whether or not we care about the fact that, that, that we are the world's number one economy, you know, whether or not we care to be the world's uh, leading economic superpower. I, I think we do, um, but maybe, you know, the question is, what are we willing to do about it? It's certainly nice that, it, that we've been able to live our lives the way that we do um, to order our iPads on Amazon and have them show up, you know, two days later. Um, and, and, and that kind of uh, lifestyle comes from being uh, an economic superpower. And then you talk about other things like human rights, uh, you know, we can, we can support human rights globally because uh, one of the reasons we can do that and influence other governments is because we are the world's number one economy, um, among other things, but that's a big part of it. And, you know, I think as a society, we're going to have to figure out to what extent are we willing to protect that, preserve it? Because as you know, you know, economists are forecasting as early as 20, I think 2028 or something like that, that, China could surpass our GDP. And, you know, COVID has hit us all and certainly hit China. But it, to me, after, you know, now that we're a couple of years into the pandemic and it's hopefully behind us, we'll see. But I don't think it hit them as hard as maybe some people had hoped in terms of economic competition. And so, you know, that, that point in which they surpass us, I think it's probably coming if we don't do anything about it and, and do we care to do anything about it? Um, you know, and I think it's the answer lies. If you, if you do care, I care, uh, you know, the answer lies somewhere between, you know, on the one hand, you could, uh, you could wage war on China. You could use your military to preserve your economic advantage. Well, I think that's not a good idea for many reasons, but that's just, that's an extreme. And then on the other hand, you could say the extreme is, well, let's just, uh, resign ourselves to our faith that we are like a post-imperial Great Britain and we will be, uh, a, you know, a, a country that is uh, that's relevant, but not the, the world's leading power and, um, you know, not have the economic benefit and the lifestyle that maybe we've become accustomed to. And I think that's also not the right answer because I do think it's important, but that's just me. So what, what do we as a society think is, uh, is worth doing you know, so maybe that's the, the broader question. And then, it, and then you obviously have to, to look at, well, then how important is the sea and maritime trade, maritime security and prosperity is important to that. So anyway, <laughs> I think I maybe went down a rabbit hole there, but um, yeah. We, we love rabbit holes. <laughs> but all, all this reminds me of, a, well, I'm going to show my age here, an old Joni Mitchell song. Uh, or the, the, I think it's um, the line is something like, you don't know what you've got until it's gone. And yeah. that's my, my fear is that as we, if we start 
chipping, if people start chipping away at what has been uh, the growth mechanism for the world in the last uh, several years, the, the free use of the seas by all people and the open nature of the of that that uh, we're, we're and and we and we don't fight back we don't resist that which uh, you know China does not like the 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 system that we and the rest of the world have enjoyed even though they've greatly benefited from it up till now uh, that we're going to find ourselves in a situation where it almost it it'd be very difficult for us to claw our way back. Is there a way to ring that bell that, uh, you know, if, if, if we don't pay attention now, uh, ring the fire alarm, uh, whatever, that we can, we can get people to recognize that how important our maritime trade is, uh, how important it is to defend the principles that we've, we've had. And, and can we use, I think the word that Brent Sadler uses military is, uh, naval statecraft to help us, uh, uh, go that direction. Yeah, so I, I I do think that there are things that we can do um, to uh, sort of mobilize ourselves uh, to start to counter what China is doing, as you mentioned. Uh, you know, it's, and I wrote about it in my my article last year, uh, uh, Beyond Defense, um, America's uh, yeah um, America's interests at sea are more than just about defense and specifically the Department of Defense and within that, the U S Navy, um, you know, China is executing a, a whole of government, whole of nation really strategy, uh, to grow their, their, um, political and economic power. And part of that is a, is a, is a well-coordinated maritime strategy. Um, and, and, you know, it's funny, like you mentioned that, that they benefited from the, uh, free and open seas. They are, for example, they they, they are um, signatories to uh, UNCLOS, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, whereas we are not. But we are arguing to, you know, we we abide by the standards under in UNCLOS, whereas they tend to just disregard those standards and those rules whenever it doesn't suit them. Um, but they were smart to, I think, to become signatories to it. And then they are, they throw that back in our faces whenever we have these uh, political or diplomatic disputes over the things that they're doing in the South China Sea. It's easy for them to point out that we're not even signatories to UNCLOS. So there's that's one example right there. I think the um, to me the pros far outweigh the cons of signing uh, that treaty and becoming a, a, a member to uh, to UNCLOS. Um, and then I and, and I love the concept of uh, of naval statecraft that uh, Brent Sadler writes about, and I just think we need to uh, start thinking about who is going to do that because it's really beyond the Navy's scope. I mean, they can they can execute the Navy can execute strategy very well, um, and and they've, we've always had a, a peacetime mission uh, beyond. Um, you know, winning wars at sea uh, under the the DOD mandate. We've we've always had, and this this goes back to the uh, you know Mahan and and Corbett and 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 even further back. You know, the idea of uh, the Navy being for more than just uh, military combat. So uh, it's it's not that we can't do it, but we are 
stuck right now in, and not just right now, but ever since we've been a part of DOD and the, the, the trend over the recent uh, years and decades has been, you know, each, each military service gets an equal part of the pie of the budget. And I, if you have, if you tell the Navy, well, you have a mission that's beyond Department of Defense. Well, Department of Defense doesn't have any interest in that. So they're not going to fund the Navy appropriately, or they're not going to, you know, the Navy is not going, of course, Congress funds, but the Navy won't get the necessary resources because it falls under DOD. So I think we need to look seriously at how we organize ourselves in order to execute things like naval statecraft. Um, so, you know, one way that I wrote about, and it's not the only way, uh, is to establish a cabinet-level department for maritime security and prosperity. So if you have a maritime department that's a, at a peer level with, a, you know, have a maritime secretary that's a peer to the, the Secretary of Defense, and the Navy falls under the maritime secretary except during times of war or whenever they're operating in part of uh, overseas contingency operations, much like the Coast Guard does today. Now you have an opportunity to advocate for the necessary budget dollars you need to go into the Navy's mission that exceeds DOD's mandate, uh, if, that, you know, if that kind of makes sense. But I think the idea of naval statecraft is a great way to think about that. Uh, uh, Brent's uh, recent article in Proceedings uh, is a really, really good demonstration of the importance of naval statecraft. He's arguing for being regionally focused and what I would say is you need a maritime department to be globally, comprehensively, uh, you know, looking at the big picture and allow uh, the Navy and probably to a lesser extent the Coast Guard uh, a focus on, on regional strategies. But you can't ask the U.S. Navy, re realistically, the U.S. Navy can't develop a national strategy because that is already beyond their scope. Um, so you have to have the appropriate entity to be developing a national maritime strategy. And right now I don't think we have that. Yeah, it's, it's hard to, to make a, a to argument or a discussion when you don't have Ref A to do that. And um, you, know, you were talking earlier about uh, going down a rabbit hole. That's the great thing about having a full hour. Everybody can go down a rabbit hole and, and I'm, I'm about to go. I'm about to go down one. You might want to jump with me. Um, right before the show, uh, one of the guys that, that follows me over on uh, uh, Twitter, Travis Horde, he pointed away. You know, it's amazing the things we've forgotten. He pointed the way to a book that came out in January of 1941 called "What the Citizen Should Know About the Navy," and it was by I heard the book. Um, is the author was uh, Hanson W. Baldwin, a guy I'd never heard of. And I'll give you a CV here in a second, but, but here's one of the, the quotes that, that Travis sent to me here uh, from the book on page 17 of it. Uh, quote, the economic, political, psychological, and historical conditions from which sea power develops are an integral part of history. In the events of yesterday and the facts of today – has found sound reasons for constructing fighting ships. Those reasons, we have seen, are primarily three. 
aggressive conquest, defensive protection, and the protection of trade. End long quote. I mean, uh, I want to go find this book, and I want to read it because it's, it looks like some of our answers are already there. You know, previous people have um, have addressed these problems, but the interesting thing about Hanson Baldwin, and we're talking about, and I like the fact that you mentioned Brent, Brent Sadler. He does great work, and everybody should read what he puts out there. Um, retired Navy captain, a whole nine yards. But here's Hanson Baldwin's background. He was U.S. Naval Academy class of 24. He did his three years of active duty and got out at 27, in 1927. Um, and I just want everybody to ponder what some people say about quitters, et cetera, and so forth. But by 1929, he found himself at the New York Times, and he stayed there. And he was one of the reporters for the New York Times who right before the war broke out in Europe, he spent time talking about the preparations there. And then when we got engaged in the war, he wound up winning the Pulitzer Prize in 43 for his reporting on Guadalcanal. And you know, part of the things we look, like, look for in the press and in society are people that have the knowledge and the background. And, you know, maybe they are Team Navy. That's fine. That's good um, as well. And it had me thinking real hard. When you look at Hanson Baldwin's CV, and he had a long life, he lived to age 88. Um, you know, where in the top echelons of, of media do we have Team Navy, our people out there who are educated enough in the profession and the concerns they can write and tell that story well. I mean, we had an OS2 larder who was doing a good job, but he quit to become a, a space <laughs> guy out west. Um, uh, so hopefully he'll, he'll he'll hear the shout out at some point. So you know, I kind of yeah. roll it to you this way: do we do we look and support those who have the background uh, to competently write uh, in those institutions, the New York Times, Washington Post, your major networks? Uh, they can go out there and write intelligent, non-cringe-worthy items that can help explain to the American public the importance of being a sea power. Yeah, I think we we uh, that's probably a, a, an area that that we are uh, lacking. I, I there are certainly quality uh, reporters and journalists out there that know enough about our. Uh, uh, maritime affairs, maritime security, the Navy, uh, to do good work and support us. But I think we, we probably owe it to ourselves to, to do more outreach and help foster uh, those young journalists' uh, careers and, um, uh, you know, basically, you know, teach them uh, more about what's important to us and why the sea is so important important to America as a maritime nation. Um, you know, my experience is, uh, you know, uh, in CIMSEC, uh, the Center for International Maritime Security, um, I was it was, it was amazing a uh, couple of years uh, as the president. I was exposed to so many really smart, uh, thoughtful people uh, that oftentimes had no connection with the Navy whatsoever. Uh, and they were, they wanted to write about 
things that didn't even have to do with the Navy. They wanted to write about governance of, of the oceans or um, uh, the, uh, in the environment and the, uh, the, the effects of climate change in the, in the maritime domain or um, uh, political uh, aspects of uh, maritime trade and all these things that, you know, on the face of it are not directly related to the Navy at all. And, and then it starts to, you start to realize how, um, how much more to the sea there is than, than just the Navy uh, and, and, more, and more than, certainly more than just the U.S. Navy because that was another part that was uh, really fun to interact with um, foreign naval officers that, that uh, wanted to submit articles to us. Um, but, you know, I'll give a, you know, you gave a shout-out. I'll give a, a shout-out as well to uh, Dmitry uh, Filipov, uh, who was the editor in chief at uh, Simsec and uh, has been there since uh, the beginning for the last uh, about 10 years and uh, never served in the Navy. Um, he's uh, just a, somebody who's always been very interested. He's at uh, grad school now in DC and um, continuing to uh, just do great work um, for Simsec. And he is, uh, he's been, um, I think, really just uh, an incredible asset for really for the Navy because he's helped to tell a story um, uh, on where the Navy has gone into the, in his time uh, as the editor. He wrote um, a series of articles uh, called uh, How the Fleet Forgot to Fight. And uh, it was, it, it created some, uh, it, it, Created some caused caused some uh, turmoil, a little bit of churn uh, when he wrote those and published those. But they were uh, well researched and very thoughtful, and um, you know that kind of thing coming from somebody who is uh, quote unquote an outsider, uh, but but very knowledgeable and uh, you know and he's not trying to throw stones. He was really trying to understand the situation and understand ways to improve. And uh, the, for the folks that listened to him, and I know several flag officers reached out um, to him, uh, there, there was a lot of benefit to that. So that, if we could have more of that, you know, if we could expand our, our, our conversations with the American public and not be so, uh, I guess, exclusive, um, you know, there's, <laughs> we have to be able to talk to the land lovers, uh, you know, as, as we seafaring folk, um, I think if we can have that conversation, then we'll get more of that positive uh, coverage and attention. And then ultimately that will hopefully bubble up into Congress and the necessary uh, you know, budget dollars that we all agree are, are going to be critical. Yeah, I, I think uh, Jerry Hendricks and Brian McGrath, um, Hunter, Hunter Stiers, and a bunch of people mm -hmm. who have been – who've been on radio, various radio shows, been tried to, I know Brian, tried to go and get uh, people to, and navalists, to go out and talk to their local rotary clubs, talk to the Kiwanis, talk to, to whoever would <laughs> tolerate having a navalist in their presence, and, and talk about why the Navy needed to be better. And there was that road show the Navy did many, many years ago when uh, to talk about what the mission of the Navy was. But nowadays, the only news we seem to get uh, sadly, I, I hate to say this, but you know something bad happens to a Navy ship. We we 
the uh, Bonhomme Richard burns burns up. The, uh, I mean, I can go down the, the list. We fire captains and all we uh, our ship COs uh, or other people get fired too in the Navy. But the, those are the headlines we're getting, and that doesn't present a really great picture of of the many many good things and important things that are being done by having our our fleet out there. Is there uh, and and I would. Uh, encourage anybody who wants to be enabled to maybe we can get Brian to come back and and give us his uh, his talking points that he used for his Kiwanis lectures or whatever. Uh, but is there is there a way? Uh, to, I don't want to be Mr. Good News guy and Pollyanna. I mean the Navy's got issues and those issues are important too. But a lot of those issues are are driven by the fact that that we don't have enough money and that. Our, we've sadly let our, our uh, some of our ships fall into disrepair, and our shipyards. You know, it, it is a whole. As, as you said earlier, China's got a whole of nation thing going, and and we really need to look at uh, at the stay. A domestic strategy to get our Navy back that's got to be whole of nation. It cannot be that that, that we ignore the Navy, but, you know, because some uh, uh, corn farmer in Iowa doesn't think it's important. A corn farmer in Iowa knows it's important. He's got to know where his product is going. So how do we how do we get yeah. the, the important message out there? Uh, in your view? Yeah, no, no, that's 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 a great point. You know, it's uh, it's and it goes back to this is more than about the Navy, you know, there's Naval strategy, but then there's a national maritime strategy. And, you know, we've got to, um, I think that's why I, I, I pushed this idea of a, of a maritime department to help advocate for the Navy as a part of maritime security and prosperity. Um, and, and it's got to be whole of nation. When you talk about uh, a maritime strategy. It's it's not just the Navy. Uh, you know we've we've got right now nine agencies from five different cabinet level departments who share responsibility uh, for the maritime domain. You know, in, uh, securing um, our waters, our trade routes, ensuring the prosperity of those trade routes. Um, and you know you've got. Department of Defense, obviously, with the Navy, you know, the Coast Guard as a part of the of Homeland Security. You've also got, uh, you know, Air, Air and Maritime Operations Division of Customs and Border Patrol. Uh, you've got the Maritime Administration and uh, CMTS, uh, which are um, both part of Department of Transportation. Of course, you've got the, the EPA as part of Department of Interior. Uh, NOAA uh, is uh, under Department of Commerce. And then you've got, you know, independent agencies like the Federal Maritime Commission, uh, National Maritime uh, Intelligence Office, uh, you know, all of these different organizations, it's all, it's all fractured. So we, we can't get the message out because we have, we're not set up to do it. Um, we, I don't think we can even start talking about a, a national maritime strategy and getting that message out. And to me, they're kind of hand in hand, this idea, like you're saying, of, telling the American people, sharing the story. Well, that is basically uh, the, the, the cornerstone of a, of a national strategy is, is to be able to communicate it. Um, we, we can't even start because we're not organized to do that. You know, those, all those different organizations I just mentioned, there are at least four different national maritime strategies written and published right now. The, you know, the navies with the Coast Guard and the Marine Corps has what the, they call the tri-service maritime strategy. 
then you've got uh, Department of Transportation has a national maritime strategy and a national strategy for the maritime transportation system, two different documents, both under Department of Transportation. Then you've got the national strategy for maritime security, which is shared between DOD and Homeland Security. And now the next uh, NDAA, the 2023 NDAA is proposing a national maritime transportation strategy separate from all of those, which would be shared between DOD, transportation, and Homeland Security. So we're not doing ourselves any favors by having such a fractured approach to such a critical area. We've already said, you know, 70% of our trade goes through our seaports. You know, we depend on the sea. We always have from the very beginning uh, of, of our nation. And, and that hasn't changed. That's only grown. And, and we're, and I think it's because of the growth of federal government, you know, that's just, this kind of happened um, predictably, you know, as our federal government grew, now you've just got this, this, this system that's almost broken when it comes to advancing our maritime interests. Uh, so we need to reorganize and that's, it's been done before we can do it again. Uh, you know, new, new uh, administrations, new um, cabinet level departments, have been created when there's been a national need. And, you know, and I'm not even advocating for growth of the federal government. I'm simply advocating for consolidating what, we are, what already exists in order to tell that story, to advocate, to organize, and then to pursue an actual strategy, which is exactly what China is doing. You know, when you're doing that, I was um, answering that last question. It, it just it popped right in my head because like you, um, you know, I've been I've been reading what people have said. You know, yourself, John Conrad, Sal Mercagliano. There have been a lot of folks that, that keep coming back to this maritime department, maritime department. But really, it's a it's a political issue. It's a bureaucracy issue. And when you look at that in D.C., uh, many times it's just it's overwhelming to a way. But you know, one of the one of our pet topics here, and it has been for a long time. Is uh, and this I think would fit right into it. Is we're long overdue for a restructuring of our entire national security apparatus, and there are finally some some people in Congress, uh, Representative Luria, Representative Gallagher, uh, uh, Representative Banks, yeah, um, uh, the, and there are a few more, including from our home state of Florida that are uh, interested in it as well. But in 1947, we had the National Security Act. You've, uh, you've got my ongoing thorn under my saddle, Goldwater Nichols from, from 1986. And it's time. It's, we're approaching the, the mid-2020s. It's time to get something modern. And the only way I think you could do a consolidation like that would be in a circumstance like 47 or 86. So to do the right thing in this regard, uh, you've got to start putting the pieces in place because eventually you'll have the right people in the Senate. You know, maybe Senator Cotton uh, can be part of this. He has some interest and some knowledge in the area, as does his staff, that eventually you'll get a critical mass up up the hill to to do a restructuring. Do you think that might be um, – at least in our lifetime, perhaps the one window of opportunity to bring some sense and organization, and if not called a maritime department, at least something that you know, meets 80% of the things that you and John and Sal have been talking about. Yeah, I, I do. I think it's 
the, the, the maritime department itself is, it's an idea, but it's not the only idea. And it, it's, uh, it's, I'm just using it as a way to, to force start this conversation um, and, and hopefully get, uh, a, you know, more people thinking about our maritime interests. But I do think it would, you know, in reality, it'll be something that's more broad, like a restructuring or uh, rewriting uh, the, the Goldwater and Nichols Act um, and we're kind of, you know, more comprehensively restructuring our national security apparatus. You know, I'm in agreement with you. It's, uh, it's about time. Um, and, you know, when we do that, I think if we can uh, get enough people talking about our maritime interests and, and knowledgeable about our maritime interests beyond just the U.S. Navy and kind of seeing the different organizations in our government that have pieces of the pie. And if, if my hope is that if we get enough people that are aware of the issues, that when the time comes to, um, you know, dump cold water nickels and put something in its place, that hopefully we can include, as you said, this um, whatever um, entity or 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 structure um, that can successfully, effectively advocate for our maritime interests, then that would be great. And if it's not a maritime department, then no, no big deal to me at all. Uh, I just, uh, my hope is that we can be having that conversation so that we don't miss that opportunity uh, because it's just going to be so important to our, uh, our country and our country's prosperity and, and security. Um, and then in the coming century, I, I believe, um, you know, the, as we look at uh, what, what China is doing uh, globally, um, you know, with uh, the South China Sea and their maritime militia and their island chains, the, the uh, distant water fishing fleet that is, uh, you know, knocking on the door of our own EEZ. So they're, they're not just stopping it in Africa and South America. They're, they're global. And, you know, that's a, that's just one aspect. I mean, their their need to feed their people uh, is only growing. I think they're forecasted to have like a 12 trillion ton deficit of fish um, over the next 10 years. So uh, that things like that are only going to uh, grow, and we're going to need to be able to, uh, from a national level, counter that without just simply relying on the Navy to send ships out at sea to, I don't know what, because <laughs> I'm not even sure what you would do. I guess you would uh, be asking to have another fish war, which would not be the first time, but um, hopefully we can avoid that and, and look at it from a more comprehensive perspective. Uh, There's so many things that, that we, tools that we have um, at our disposal. Uh, going back to that, you have naval statecraft, you know, um, we, you know, for example, Iran sent a uh, uh, a flotilla, a, a couple of ships, a tanker and an escort, on a on a um, transatlantic voyage. I think their uh, uh, it was pretty much known their intent was to go to Venezuela, and uh, with pressure from our government, our State Department, uh, they were denied that ability, and instead they went up to um, Saint Petersburg, Russia. So. You know, we, that's a, that's a great example of, in my mind, naval statecraft. 
that didn't involve just sending out an armada to meet them on the high seas. So, um, and given the fact that, you know, we're, we're way under uh, numbers on the number of warships that we probably need, uh, we're not going to be able to cover uh, every corner of the globe with our Navy. So we're going to have to be able to have a whole of nation approach to maritime security and prosperity. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the State Department because that is the one agency you didn't mention that ought to be helping our country focus on a on a on the uh, the naval side of matters. I mean, we you know naval diplomacy, naval statecraft. Uh, we have a long history of that, but um, we need to get our State Department people involved. I mean, we, we've got China going into the Solomons. Uh, Solomons turning down. Recently, I think some help from Australia or somebody that was going to go in there. I mean, they, because they've already got some pressure from China. I mean, and when you talk about whole of nation, whole of government, this has got to be more than just the Navy. We need to convince our State Department friends uh, that they've got to look out for, for our naval interests and our, and our other maritime interests, the merchant marine, all that other stuff. And, you know, China's taken over or has helped develop a lot of countries' ports now, Sri Lanka being one of them, I think, uh, that, you know, that, that is an issue that needs to be addressed. And I, I think that's uh, important to, to make the State Department one of our leading sea power uh, forces, too. How do you think about that? Yeah. I think they uh, they need to be. They need to grow. I think you know you could almost grow them with you know navalists and, and maritime professionals that that would execute this, this naval statecraft. Um, because frankly, I just think as it's structured right now, and uh, you know, it's just not uh, not capable. Our State Department is not capable of doing what probably they're going to have to do over the next century. Um, just you know like the examples that you just mentioned. And I think we saw that with um, Afghanistan. Um, you know, it, it's uh, uh, not not trying to be a Monday morning quarterback, but I think most people agree that our, our national strategy in Afghanistan probably should have been more diplomatic state-focused than uh, military-focused. Um, and I, I think that's uh, going to be true in the maritime uh, going forward with uh, China. You know, we we um, we do freedom of navigation operations in uh, the South China Sea and uh, Taiwan Strait, and we typically have a, a a navy spokesperson that announces it, and then he's countered by the the Chinese uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs. You know, uh, an equivalent to the the Secretary of State. So they, you know, we've got a navy spokesperson going up against their Secretary of State, and uh, it, there's there's you know, essentially they have no chance in, in terms of winning that information diplomatic quote unquote battle. Um, you know, you can, you can look at the, uh, the 2012 uh, uh, standoff at Scarborough Shoal uh, that involved a, a Philippine uh, warship. And, you know, actually this is a, an example that I, I'm pulling from Brent Sather's recent article um, in proceedings. And he, he basically said, you know, Aside from diplomatic protests of Chinese cyber attacks and embargoes, meaningful U.S. economic statecraft in support of the Philippines was not evident. Eventually, the U.S. brokered a deal with both sides, agreeing to withdraw under the pretext of an, of an approaching typhoon. However, Chinese vessels did not all leave, and they're still there today. So, um, and it, that's inside the Philippines EEZ. And, uh, you know, that, that same area popped up again last year, the uh, Whitsun Reef, 
where the maritime militia amassed in that uh, uh, area of the Philippines um, economic zone. Uh, it's not territorial waters, but they're they're, they're you know they're not supposed to be fishing inside of another nation's EEZ, and that's that's what that's what's happening. But they're they're establishing you know effective sea control because of that presence, and they're uh, and that's something that they're doing persistent you know um, repetitively, persistently over time to establish uh, what you would call you know de facto control over an area, um, and that's uh, that they're going to keep doing that unless we can we, us and our partners uh, can effectively counter that. And it's going to have to be more than just the, the U.S. Navy doing it. The you know, conversation, and I'll, I don't know whether I want to get you in trouble or not, but I'll, I'll try not to. <laughs> but um, there was, back in, right at the end of June, an, an interesting point, because I've, I've always been a fan, and, and as you may have been familiar, because I think it's come up in our conversations, I always am asking, you know, who are the people in Congress that we can look to? I'm a big fan of congressional oversight for a whole host of reasons. I think people expecting the uniformed Navy to do X or Y, just it's not going to happen. It's, the, the, it's just not. And there are even some outside institutions that you would think would um, – push kind of some of the things we've been talked about more than they don't. But for some reason, that doesn't quite work out. And there was a call by the House Armed Services Committee. They proposed a, a new congressional committee to study the Navy current conditions. I think those things are absolutely great. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a net positive. There are probably some things that we wouldn't like and people asking embarrassing questions, but that's okay. Uh, welcome to the, a messy republic. But in reply, um, retired Admiral James Fogo stated the the Navy, roughly the Navy doesn't need support. Uh, correct. Let me correct myself. He stated roughly that the Navy needs support, not more onerous oversight. And uh, usually, you have to earn such independence. And I, I think that the the Navy has shown recently that. Uh, if for no other reason than to get Congress more invested in our future and our development, that uh, maybe that's not a bad idea that a little more oversight uh, comes for the Navy. You know, what do you think can be uh, gained from additional congressional oversight? And what do you think some of the down uh, parts might be? Uh, I I have a hard time thinking of uh, downsides to congressional oversight right now. Um, so I, first of all, have the utmost respect for Admiral Fogo and um, a, a huge fan of him being uh, standing up the uh, Center for Maritime Strategy and, um, and at, at, you know, full disclosure, I, I talked to him uh, a bit when I was president of SIMSEC and, and we offered our full support for advocating for that new center and uh, I hope they they continue to do great things. Um, and and yep, I, I we, read his we, uh, article. We had him, yeah, we had him on mid-racks. We're big supporters too, but, you know. Yeah. So I will say I disagree with him, um, but that's, uh, that's obviously says that's, that's a, this is just a disagreement on this one point um, that his, uh, you know, he ends, he ends his, his article with, uh, you know, given the proper resources above the current top line, 
uh, you know, budgetary you know, dollars, or by breaking the one-third, one-third, one-third paradigm, the Navy knows what to do. Well, I completely agree that the Navy knows what to do. I don't think they're able to do it because they're in that paradigm. And as we said earlier, we're, we're asking a, an element of the Department of Defense to do something beyond defense. And I don't get how you can expect the Navy to do that with the resources it's getting. How can you ask something that's a part of the Department of Defense? Because they're not, because the Department of Defense only cares about our national defense as they should. And the Navy's role exceeds that. And that, that's something that I think you would find almost unanimous agreement among Navalists. And, you know, you look at the history of uh, navies and what they're used for. So, you know, history didn't begin with uh, Goldwater Nichols, and and, it, and it's not going to end with it. So, we're 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 going to have to make sure we we really understand. You know, read that book that uh, Travis uh, found and put on your Twitter page. I think we all need to read it, and um, I think we'll see that that uh, congressional oversight might be the the thing that that helps to break that. Um, I don't know. It, uh, it certainly might just end up being more of the same. Uh, probably Congress telling us we can't decommission cruisers. Um, but, uh, you know, that's uh, it's anything, I think, to, to break the strategic stagnation that we have found ourselves in because China is not standing still. They are full speed ahead, and we're going to find ourselves in a bad spot. And eventually our, our Navy probably will get funded appropriately, but that might be, you know, uh, <laughs> after something like Pearl Harbor happens again and we're in the middle of a war and we're catching up and that's not, not a good place to be and a lot of bad things probably happened before that. So I hope we can understand what needs to be done before there's a, some sort of national strategy uh, on our hands. Yeah, I, I think it's uh... – it's important that we have people like John Conrad and Selma Cargliano and and uh, and Simsec and the Center for um, that uh, I mean Sea Power's new center that Admiral Fogo is in charge of uh, because you know we we do need to to keep the pressure on and not just for Navy stuff I mean you know, it's important I don't know how much we can, times we can say this but you know our merchant marine is important to us our ports are important to us our shipyards are important to us you know we, we when we uh, it's just got to take care of that stuff but that's just me standing on a soapbox right now uh, let's let me ask you yeah. this uh, you've you've uh, written some really good stuff lately one of the reasons we're talking to you now and and uh, what have you got coming up in the future and and when can we look forward to seeing it and uh, what what are your hot buzz topics you're working on uh, okay well um, I, I first I want to um, shamelessly uh, plug something that I've uh, read recently so I guess I've been doing a bit more reading than, than writing um, and I just wanted to quickly mention this uh, article that uh, was in, um, oh gosh, I'm going to forget the name. It's an MIT security uh, journal, um, but uh, it's called uh, Peer Competitor, and it's Peer, uh, P-I-E-R. You know, they had me uh, at hello with uh, using the pun in the, in the title, uh, but the, it's a great article. Everybody should read it. Uh, I think I might have uh, thrown it on your Twitter page, but uh, I'll, I'll post a link again. But uh, they talk about 
China's power position in the global port network, commercial ports, and you know, because they they don't have overseas military bases like we do, and they've got one and and a couple more on the way. Um, but what they do have is immense control uh, com- uh, from a, a diplomatic and um, commercial perspective of uh, ports and terminals and shipping lines. And uh, this one piece I just want to read to the the listeners. Without meaningful U.S. ownership or control of the ports, shipping, manufacturing, and logistics underpinning the global maritime trade network, flows of goods vital to U.S. economic health and military capabilities are at risk of disruption. PRC firms' dominant network position affords this party state a range of options apart from military power projection to delay, degrade, or otherwise impede such critical flows of goods using plausibly deniable commercial disruption, i.e. denying port calls, misdirecting cargoes, delaying or halting terminal operations. So I just thought that was a, a fantastic summation of the risks that we face, one of the risks, but to me, I think this is one of the most underappreciated risks going forward to our, not only our neighbor, Navy, but our maritime interests. So uh, bravo Zulu to the authors um, for highlighting that. And um, sorry, so anyway, to answer the question that you asked me, um, I am, Right now, working on a, 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 an updated version of um, my uh, Beyond Defense article. So it's the same topic, really hammering home this idea of a maritime department. And it's going to be part of um, a project called Sea Power by Other Means. Uh, uh, Professor Jay Overton, um, who uh, I'm sure some of your uh, listeners are familiar with, uh, he's heading this up, and it's going to be part of uh, the uh, Keel Sea uh, Power series over at uh, ISPK, and, uh, and they're uh, great advocates uh, 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 for uh, sea power uh, you know, from a, a European perspective, but they're, uh, they're great, fans to, great friends to U.S. navalists as well. Um, so look for that sometime next year, I think. And uh, there's going to be a, a broad range of uh, topics that kind of – they all kind of center around this idea that we've been – talking about or talking around it at least it's uh sea power um is not just about u.s navy and there are other ways to uh to to achieve it um and you know i think the um, the authors of that peer competitor article uh use a term like um non-traditional power projection or something to that effect and uh that's another good way of course naval statecraft again you know these are all kind of they're all kind of related ideas that uh hopefully will help to uh, keep the conversation going and, and, and broadening it and, uh, you know, get to that point where uh, people up in D.C. start paying attention. Yeah, I just wanted to, to echo what you said about our German friends over at Kiel. I hope everybody um, who listens to MidRats finds some way to track the work that's done there. They They produce some really quality products, but more importantly, they they – for a variety of reasons, they managed to get that information out. There's there's some great stuff that gets produced domestically here in the U.S., but it uh, it never seems to come off dead tree. But, uh, hey, I uh, just wanted to, to echo my co-host. Really appreciate you, Jimmy, taking time with us today. It was a, was a great hour, and uh, I, I look forward to having a conversation with you again here in the future. Yeah, that sounds great. I, I, I'm honored to be uh, discussing this uh, really important topic with you guys. I always enjoy it, and uh, I'd, I'd be happy to come on anytime. Thanks again. Yeah, we could we could spend several more hours with you. So thanks again. <laughs> you got it. And thank.
And thank you, everybody, for joining us for another edition of MidRats. And until next time, I hope you have a great Navy day. Cheers.